Welcome, everyone. I'm Dan Palazzolo. I'm professor of political science at the University of Richmond. I'm also the co-director, along with my colleague Terry Price, of the Gary L. McDowell Institute. And we're glad you're here today. The McDowell Institute is dedicated to free inquiry, thoughtful deliberation, and rigorous discussion of classical texts and issues in political economy. The Institute welcomes all members of the University of Richmond community and a wide range of political perspectives. Those are the values that Professor Gary L. McDowell, the namesake of this institute, lived by and modeled as a teacher and a scholar. Uh, I want to take a moment to just recognize a few people and talk about our event for today. Uh, I'll start with uh, Gary's wife, Brenda McDowell, who's here in front, is a dear friend and supporter of the Institute. I also want to thank Dr. Sandra Peart, the Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, for her support of the Institute. And seated in front right here would be a group of our student fellows. And our student fellows participate in McDowell Institute events, like today. They meet bi-weekly during the spring to discuss their perspectives on a selected book. And they're joined by two discussion leaders who are outstanding professors, Dr. Kevin Cherry, who's an associate professor of political science, and Dr. Jessica Flanagan, who's an associate professor of leadership studies and philosophy, politics, economics, and law, and also the Richard L. McDow McDow <laughs> Richard L. Moral Chair in Ethics and Democratic Values. It's been a long week. Uh, so uh, with the fellows and their seminar leader, Dr. Cherry Stans, we can recognize you. Great. Finally, we want to thank the friends and supporters of the Institute, especially the Pauley Family Foundation, for their generous gifts, which make our programs possible. Just want to make two quick program notes before we start. There will be some time at the end for questions. And we do have a couple of people, Catherine and Shannon, who will be going around uh, with a microphone. So if you'd like to uh, ask a question, I'll be standing over in the corner over there. And I will um, ask the, uh, the uh, two, two staff who are working with the microphones to, to bring them to you. Um, and uh, at the end, the second point is at the end of the, of the talk, we will have a reception out in the lobby and an opportunity for you to purchase and to have signed this book, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature, by our co-authored uh, by our speaker, uh, Angel Parham and her co-author Anika Prother. Now I would like to invite one of our student fellows to introduce our speaker. She is Lauren Oleguino and she's a double major in leadership studies and political science. She also has a minor in women, gender, and sexuality studies. Lauren is an outstanding student and an outstanding citizen of the university. She's had so many accomplishments and awards that it would take us all day for me to recount them, but I'll simply point out uh, that among other things, she is the president of the West Hampton College Student Government Association, and of course, most of all, a McDowell Fellow. Lauren, could you please? This is very exciting for me. I've never gotten my own introduction for an introduction before, so that's exciting. <laughs> So I'm just gonna reiterate, Dr. Angel Adams Parham is also quite the accomplished person, and honestly, I could give a whole lecture on everything she's done, but I'm just gonna name a few of them today. 
So today I do have the pleasure of introducing our speaker. I'm very excited for it, Dr. Angel Adams Parham. Dr. Parham is an associate professor in sociology at UVA. She is also the associate director of the political and social thought major and a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on the historical and comparative historical sociology of race. For her book, American Roots, Racial Pamphlets and the Transformation of Race, Dr. Perrin received awards from the Social Science History Association and the American Sociological Association. In addition to her work at UVA, Dr. Parham is the co-founder and executive director of an educational nonprofit, which provides lower and upper school curricula in the humanities to both schools and homeschools. So each time a McDowell Institute speaker comes in, the fellows have the opportunity to have a conversation with the speaker about their work. So for today, we read an excerpt from Dr. Perrin's book, The Black Intellectual Tradition, and we also read her op-eds, the As Black Educators, We Endorse Classical Studies, and Don't Cancel the Classics, Broaden and Diversify Them, which were published in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, respectively. During our conversation today, we discussed a variety of issues, including classical curriculum in K-12 education and what that could look like, and also how classical literature can be used to teach about our history and also current events in today's society. So I know I speak for all the McDowell Institute fellows when I say we appreciate Dr. Parham taking the time to meet with us today. It was a great conversation and we really appreciated you answering all of our questions. And please help me welcome Dr. Parham to the stage. so much for that beautiful introduction. Um, it is such a pleasure to be here and I was so impressed by the students today and the conversation and they really just had outstanding questions and um, we really could have gone on for quite a while. Very, very impressive to see them. Um, so thank you for coming out today and I will be speaking with you on this topic of why we should not cancel the classics and how they are an invitation to a wider conversation. So first, what I want to say um, is that some of this debate that we've been having recently is something that we have talked about before. In fact, there have been many waves of this kind of same type of conversation. Um, and so in the 80s, for, for instance, you know, there were these questions about the Western canon and, you know, should we keep this focus on the Western canon or, you know, should we think of it as a, a loose canon, you know, that maybe shouldn't be quite so rigidly adhered to. There was the closing of the American mind, which many of you probably remember. Um, and, you know, Alan Bloom's book was also tended to be fairly controversial with people kind of polarized on different sides of it. And then in response, you had the opening of the American mind, you know, in response to this idea of the closing of the American mind. And so what Levine argued was more that, well, you know, I'm not so sure we really have a problem with the closing of the American mind. You know, maybe we should, again, be more diverse and more flexible in terms of what we consider to be central to what we read and teach. And so what we tend to get um, is this kind of discussion, which is, well, maybe we should um, preserve the classics against the barbarians at the gate, right? There are all of these you know, people out there trying to get in, and we need to preserve the classics against them. 
Um, and then on the other side, others say, well, you know, really, what is the canon, right? You know, it's, it's something that's been constructed by people. It's something that can be easily widened and diversified. What we tend to miss, however, is a kind of fusion, um, right? So first of all, there really is much at stake um, in losing a canon. And a canon should change slowly. Um, on the other hand, I do think we should integrate new voices. But let me just say a little more about the first point, um, that there is much at stake in losing a canon, in losing the sense that there is some kind of collective body of literature that the vast majority of us have been um, kind of socialized and educated into. So in um, some of my classes, I remember one a few years ago where we were reading a short story, and it was actually a Chinese short story. But the Chinese short story was very much in dialogue with a biblical story. And it was the biblical story of King Solomon, the two women, and the baby. All right, but it did not spell that out. You had to already know about the story of King Solomon and the two women and the baby to know that that's what the story was referencing. And so we had finished reading the story and we were discussing it. And I said, ah, oh, so does, does this, you know, kind of does this seem familiar to you at all? Um, what's going on in this story? And I, I got, you know, 35 blank faces. No idea. No, not really. So I prompted a little more. You know, King Solomon, babies, anything. Um, and there was one lone hand. She said, I, th I think I kind of remember something about two women and a baby and a king, but that was about as far as it went, you know. I have referenced um, Noah's Ark and the Flood and gotten a vast majority blank looks. Like, who, what, what flood, who, Noah who? Um, you know, and when I say this, it's, it's not as if I, I think everyone should, you know, become Christian overnight and, you know, be, that, that has nothing to do with it. It's just basic cultural literacy, right? Um, that regardless of anyone's faith, background, if you're going to read a lot of the literature, um, American literature, you need to have some kind of basic background and understanding of these cultural references. Um, my daughter is um, a senior in high school, and she's had a classical education her whole life, and she's working on her senior thesis, and she's interested in studying classics. And so she wants to kind of think through even more, you know, like why, why are classics important? And I asked her, I said, why? And she's like, well, you know, so much of our popular culture, you know, is taken from these classical references. And one of the things she referenced was the Hunger Games. So I don't know how many of you have seen the Hunger Games, um, but it is replete with classical imagery, right? Um, and the, even the names of the characters, you know, are taken from um, classics. And so I think, what it does is, at the very least, it gives us some common frame of reference, all right? Now, on the other hand, I think that this claim that we do need more diverse voices is also very important, right? And I think we have the ability to do that, and that's some of what I want to share with you today. So this fusion that we're missing, part of it, I think, is placing traditions into conversation. And it's not the same as promoting diversity. Not that there's anything wrong with diversity, so don't get me wrong. But it just depends on how one does it. Um, I've been on different kinds of um, committees for diversity that can unfortunately just turn into box checking, 
okay, well, you know, like we've checked that box or, well, let's just throw this reader in there. And it's not really done with a lot of, you know, kind of coherence of, of why should we read these, these more diverse authors. Um, but there's a lot of diversity already in this tradition, depending on how we define it. Um, so Phyllis Wheatley is one that I'll talk a, a little more about later, um, but she uh, very much referenced the classics and she referenced um, Terence, a playwright, um, uh, very much in the work that she did, for instance. And so there's already a conversation that she's having in the 18th century that we can draw on. There are other ways of bringing it together. So um, some of the nonprofit educational work that I do, writing curricula and starting programs in the community, um, we have done this with the Iliad and putting it into tradition with the, um, an African epic from Mali on the legend of Sundiata. And there are a lot of themes that resonate with each other in looking at those in conversation with each other. So this is just an example of what you might be able to do. But there are also other reasons for studying um, classical antiquity in particular. Um, and this has to do with decentering our modern or contemporary racial imaginary in order to see our history and our times more clearly. And inviting our students um, to a foundational and centering conversation about what it means to be human um, and in our context here, what it means to be American. So I'm gonna talk about the two of those in turn. So first, this idea of decentering the modern racial imaginary. So um, you know, as in my wonderful introduction you heard, my work is on the historical sociology of race. And so I am very interested in where this idea of race came from. Um, how was it constructed over time? Uh, we have not always thought in terms of black on one side, white on the other side, a hierarchy of color with value judgments. That is not something that has existed for all of human history. And one of the things that you get from studying classical antiquity is an understanding that that is not the way it has always been. And so it kind of decenters um, this racial way of seeing things, even if we don't want to see the world this way. We've been steeped for so long to have a certain associations with different races or colors of people that it's very hard to get out of that. Um, and so these books, these are books by um, scholars in the classics who are trying to help us to understand ways of thinking about difference in the ancient world that were quite different from the way that it has been over the past 500 years. Frank Snowden was one of the earliest who did this. He was a classicist at um, Howard. And he did so much work looking at blacks in antiquity. Um, and I'll say more about that here, for instance, when we think about Ethiopians and the ancient imagination, this is part of what Frank Snowden was interested in looking at. And I have to back up here first and say that when I say Ethiopians um, in the, the work of the ancients, when they would talk about Ethiopians, what they meant was, in general, uh, dark-skinned Africans. So they were not talking about people from the modern country of Ethiopian. It was just kind of dark-skinned Africans in general is what they meant when they talked about Ethiopians. And Ethiopians in the ancient imagination, it's really quite interesting. So this is from a wonderful article called Feasting with Ethiopians Life on the Fringe. And I'm gonna read this one. I won't read all of the quotes, but I'm gonna read this one because I think it's very revealing. In classical literature, the picture of Ethiopia as idyllic, as a land of plenty, begins with Homer. In the Odyssey, Menelaus describes the treasures of gold, amber, and ivory, which he had picked up while visiting the Ethiopians. 
Homer's gods go to the Ethiopians when they want to eat well, feasting and banqueting on hecatombs. Iris turns down a banquet with the winds to set off for the Ethiopians who lay on hecatombs for immortals. Poseidon tucks into a hecatomb of bulls and sheep in the halls of the Ethiopians. Zeus himself departs for a feast with the Ethiopians and is followed by the other gods. So that is just one sample from ancient literature that gives you an insight into what she's talking about. Um, that this idea of blackness being stigmatized automatically and put at the bottom um, is not something that has always existed. And this is part of what you can get into this world of understanding when you're looking at uh, ancient classics. I always think it's very important too to get out a map. Okay, so we think about um, if we were to create a map based on Herodotus and Herodotus' travels, and Herodotus is often thought of as, as kind of the first ancient historian, um, and he's also something of a, um, an ethnographer. He's very interested in different cultures, he travels, he gathers stories. Um, in this map, you will see that you see Europe there, but you also see Libya, you see Arabia, um, you see India, you see all of these peoples that um, he gathered stories about or visited. You know, it was a very much a, a Mediterranean crossroads. Right? It's not like he was just off on his own um, writing this. He was very much engaged with this kind of cultural dynamism. So here are a couple of excerpts from the histories of, of Herodotus, and again on the Ethiopians. And this one's a fascinating passage where he's talking about Cambyses, um, who was a ruler who was set on expanding his realm of influence. And so he had a, a few different peoples that he had a strategy. I'm going to overtake these people and take their land. And he had a group of Ethiopians that he also wanted to take over their land. For the first two groups, he had a strategy that was very militaristic. He was just going to kind of go in, crush them, and take the land over. But when it came to the Ethiopians, he felt that he needed a more clever and subtle approach. He wasn't going to be able to just go in militarily and conquer them. And so he sent this delegation bearing gifts. And he said, go and tell them we want to be friends. Um, and you know, maybe we can kind of get a dialogue going, and I can kind of slip in there somewhere and win their trust and, and, and have my way with them. And you can see from the quote that there is this sense, at least in Herodotus's mind, um, that there was a lot of um, admiration of these Ethiopians. So the king of the Ethiopians, and you know, which particular group of Ethiopians we can't know, but the king saw through the ruse and said, why don't you go back and tell Cambyses he better back off or he's going to be sorry. And he said, you know, and by the way, we don't need any of your gifts. We have all we could ever want here because we're already wealthy and we're doing very, very well. And so this is a passage where the king has um, you know, tried to set this delegation right. And he says, come with me. I'm going to show you what we have here. So the king took them to a spring whose water made anyone washing in it more sleek, as if it had been olive oil and which gave off a scent like violets. In their report, the spies said that the water of this spring was so soft that nothing could float on it, not wood or even anything lighter than wood. Assuming the truth of the reports of this water, it would explain why these Ethiopians are so long-lived, if they use it for everything. Then they left the spring and were taken to a prison where all the prisoners were shackled with gold chains. Very fantastical, right? There's a lot in Herodotus that is very fantastical. 
But what it does do, um, it's not so much that we should believe that there were prisoners with gold change, but what it does do is it reinforces what our, the scholar on the previous slide said about the overall um, place of Ethiopians in the Greek imagination, right? There is this sense that they're this place of splendor and wealth and beauty. So um, studying the ancient past allows us to visit a time very, very unlike our own, where blackness is not assumed to be at the bottom, whiteness is not assumed to be at the top, where there's a, a much more, you know, kind of decentered understanding of, well, let's look at the, the history and the culture of this group. You know, some Ethiopians were very admired, some were not. Same thing with some Northern Europeans admired, some were not. You know, it's, a, it's something that gets us out of the, the assumptions that we've been socialized into. And I think in that sense, it's very, very important, um, especially for our very polarized times to be conversant with. Then as we get more to the modern world, um, studying classic texts and studying founding documents, I think is absolutely necessary um, to helping us to have some better conversations. So we have been going through a lot of um, polarizing discussions also um, in terms of our own history, right? How should we engage with the past? What should our posture be toward complicated and difficult aspects of the American past? And what value is there in studying these primary documents and classic texts? And then the American project itself, who are we as Americans? And is the American project fundamentally good, fundamentally flawed, something in between? You will, I am sure, be very familiar with the 1619 Project and with the perspective of that project on who we are as Americans and where we need to go from here. And then the response to it, um, 1776, and um, a very different way of thinking about the United States. And so we've been, again, in kind of this tug of war back and forth, um, which I'm not sure how helpful it has been because I do think that there is a, a different, more integrated way to think about these questions, which are admittedly very difficult questions. And so one of the things that I see when I look out at American history is that while history does not repeat itself, um, it also it can often rhyme or echo with the past. In other words, we have similar kinds of debates that we tend to have periodically in waves across time. And the study of primary documents and classic texts can provide a foundation for helping us to work through these controversies that tend to come back again and again. And then also the study of great lives provides images of virtue to emulate. Although of course we don't always do that unproblematically as they are humans and they have faults. So I wanna take you to um, back to the 18th century and Phyllis Wheatley and talk a little bit about her. And, and this is an example, I think, of how to look at some of these thorny issues of our past, right? So Phyllis Wheatley was very active in the American Revolution. Um, and I think studying her story when we are looking at what it means to be American is very, very important. So who was she? She was brought from West Africa, we think maybe in the general area of current day Senegal. Um, Timothy Fitch was a wealthy Boston merchant who um, sent his agent out to West Africa to buy up Africans, right? And he declared it a disappointing venture because his agent came back with a lot of women and young children like Phyllis Wheatley. We think that she was about seven years old when she got to Boston. And the reason is because she was missing her two front teeth. And that's about the age that children are when they are 
two front teeth are missing. Um, and you can only imagine the horror of having been on a slave ship coming across the ocean at such a tender age. Any age would have been horrible, um, but especially for such a young child. And she was fairly sickly um, throughout her life and when she got here. So she makes her way, she gets to Boston. Um, she is living around the time that is leading up to the American Revolution, and she's getting steeped in the politics of the American Revolution. The Wheatleys who bought her in Boston were a very wealthy, prominent family, and they gave her an education, which is to their credit, because of course at this time, um, it was not something that most Africans would get, and it was often illegal to even teach an African how to read. So she learns how to read, but she doesn't only learn how to read. She gets a classical education which she puts to um, tremendous use politically in terms of her advocating for freedom. I say here Phyllis's choice because I think one of the things that we, we don't often learn when we are learning about the American Revolution is that Africans who were there had a choice, right? Um, and so there were some who actually fought on the side of the British and there were others who fought on the side of the Americans, often because they were promised their freedom by one side or another. Phyllis had a choice. She could have kept her mouth shut. She didn't need to say anything at all about the revolution. She could have said, this is, this is your people's country, this is not mine, right? You stole me, you put me on the ship, you brought me over here, I want nothing to do with you. That was not her choice. Her choice was to be very outspoken on the side of the revolution, and I think it's partly because she saw an overlap with this fighting for freedom and the fight for the freedom of her own people who were African. So we see this in her poetry. Before the Boston Massacre, um, I mean, there were many skirmishes leading up to it. And there was a, a young boy who was killed even leading up to the Boston Massacre. And this is one of her poems. It's just a part of it. I'm not going to read this one, where she is writing for this young boy who was murdered. And she sees him as an early martyr of the revolution. Right around the time all of this has happened, she's already been writing poetry. She's been interested in publishing a volume of her poetry in 1772, but she couldn't get it off the ground. She couldn't get enough um, backing, financial backing in Boston to publish it. Well, it happens that the Earl of Dartmouth at about this time was appointed to be the secretary for the colonies. So he's a, an Englishman, August 1772. One of his aides happened to be traveling through Boston um, at the time that the Earl of Dartmouth got this appointment as the Secretary of the Colonies. And so this man says, you know, I've heard about this young African woman who apparently is this kind of poetical genius. I wonder if there's anything into it or if they're just kind of making this up. So he went over and visited Phyllis Wheatley and he said, so I hear you're a poet. Can you prove it? I want you to write a poem about the Earl of Dartmouth. You know, and so he basically throws down this challenge to her and says, I want to see you do this poem now. You know, I want a, a proof that, you know, people are not lying or stretching the truth or making anything up. And so she says, I can do that. And she was very accustomed to writing poems. Um, she would often write poems that were kind of elegies for people who had died or, you know, for other people who were considered to be very courageous. And so she knew of the Earl of Dartmouth. She was very politically astute. Um, and she already knew something about him and his appointment as secretary um, to the colonies. And so she wrote a poem um, to the Earl of Dartmouth that addressed 
who he was politically. And as you'll see from some of the stanzas that I brought out here, she's also making a political point in the poem that she's writing. And then she also writes a letter. Okay, so this is one of the stanzas from the poem to Dartmouth. Hail happy day, when smiling like the morn, fair freedom rose New England to adorn. The northern clime beneath her genial ray, Dartmouth congratulates thy blissful sway. Elate with hope, her race no longer mourns, each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns, while in thine hand, with pleasure we behold, the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold, long lost to realms beneath the northern skies. So what you see here is that she's hitting at this theme of freedom over and over again. And she also is directly addressing the fact that he now has power over the colonies, right? So she says, congratulations for your blissful sway, for your power here. Um, and she says, we are filled with hope. We no longer have to mourn, right? Because you're going to use silken reins to rule. Silken reins, right? So you're going to be very light-handed in your rule. So she's flattering him, but she's also calling him to be the kind of person who's going to have um, a fair and judicious rule and not one that is rough. So then she goes on um, and she says, should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood, I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. So here again, she's on the theme of freedom, and a critique of the slave trade, right? If you wonder why I care so much about freedom, you must know that I was snatched from my parents in the bosom of Africa, and this is why I care so much about this freedom. There's really um, a disservice that's been done to Phyllis Wheatley because uh, her perhaps most anthologized poem um, on being brought from Africa to America is one that makes it sound as if she was happy to be kidnapped and brought to America. Um, and it is probably the most widely read poem of hers. And I think it's just not read in a proper context, context for the 18th century. There's a lot going on in that poem. But when you read the body of her poetry, her letters, you see that she was absolutely very critical of the slave trade, of slavery, and very much on the side of freedom, the American Revolution, and freedom for people from Africa who were being enslaved. In terms of her support of the revolution, she had a direct exchange with George Washington, right? So when I asked that series of questions, how should we approach the difficult aspects of our history? Um, it's a thorny history, right? We have to be honest about that. I think it helps to have guides like Phyllis Wheatley who could see the best in the American project while also being brutally honest about what needed to be criticized. Um, and she was able to do both of those with some genius. So she writes to George Washington um, when he's the general, and she writes a poem to him. So here is a um, part of it. I won't read it. Um, I urge you to go and read the whole poem yourself. But she's very laudatory of George Washington, very much admires him. And this is more. 
And then George, um, George Washington actually writes back to her. So he gets the poem, he gets the letter, and he writes to her. You know, it's a really amazing thing. And he's very, very impressed with Phyllis Wheatley. Um, and he says something along the lines of, well, I would have published your poem, but that would have been kind of conceited of me because it's about me and how wonderful I am. Um, so he, he does not publish it, but he has a friend publish it. And so it's published in newspapers, and you know, it's widely read, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this is what, part of the reason that I see figures like Phyllis Wheatley being so important to helping us as guides. So she's an 18th century guide, and we have other guides in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, who I think can help us through some very difficult terrain um, uh, in terms of what we are grappling with right now, the most recent incarnation of our debate. So moving on to some of our 19th century guides. So Alexander Crummel and Frederick Douglass. You, I'm sure you've heard of Frederick Douglass. You probably have not heard of Alexander Crummel. He was a very prominent 19th century black intellectual. And the two of them had very different um, views of how we should remember the past, and particularly the slave past. And I say this, if you remember I said that while history doesn't repeat itself, it often echoes or rhymes. There are often kind of similar types of questions. And this one about how do we think about our past? How, we, how do we think about the worst of our past? Do we kind of put it in the past or do we grapple with it? So these two intellectuals had um, very different approaches to thinking about the past. So just to say a little bit about Cromwell, he was actually born free. In 1819 in New York City, he went to um, a free African school. He eventually studied in Cambridge and became a minister in Liberia. So in this speech, he is saying, we need to be really careful about remembering slavery. If men will put themselves in a narrow and straightened grooves, if they will morbidly divorce themselves from large ideas and noble convictions, they are sure to bring distress, pettiness, and misery into their being. For the mind of man was made for things grand, exalted, and majestic. So he says, don't dwell too much on the past. And here he says, um, yes, you will remember it, but don't constantly recollect the slave past. So this is his perspective. We need to go on to what is noble in and, and, and our thinking. Frederick Douglass had a very different perspective than Alexander Crummel. Um, so he was born into slavery in 1818. He began learning to read when he was um, transferred from the countryside to Baltimore. Um, before that master, um, Mr. and Mrs. Ald, forbid him to read anymore. He then tricked young boys into helping him to read and started reading classic speeches and literature in the Columbian orator when he was about 12 years old. And that is part of what trained him to be a great orator. So he disagrees very much with Crummel. And he says, we're sometimes asked in the name of patriotism to forget the merits of this fearful struggle. He's talking about the Civil War. And to remember with equal admiration those who struck at the nation's life and those who struck to save it those who fought for slavery and those who fought for liberty and justice. But we are not here to applaud manly courage. Save as it has been displayed in a noble cause, we must never forget that victory to the rebellion meant death to the republic. And then later he talks again about this. Um, if you're familiar with his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, that's another one. Um, he, like Phyllis Wheatley, was very good about bringing out the best of the American project and critiquing 
where it needed to work or to, to change. So he is a wonderful 19th century guide to the questions. And again, engaging with the past, how do we think about these difficult aspects? Um, what's the value of these primary and classic texts? And the American project, who are we as Americans? So studying these great lives, I think, is important. You know, sometimes there's concern about, well, if we elevate certain kinds of people, then you know, what about all of their flaws? I think everyone obviously has flaws, some perhaps worse than others. But I do think it's important to study the great contributions while also being honest about the weaknesses. So I want to move into some more on reading across traditions. Um, so the Western canon with the black intellectual tradition, which is what the book is about, um, and then cultivating civic community and bridging divides. And here I'm going to say more about Nyansa Classical Community, which is the organization that I co-founded and which now does a lot of work um, in various communities. So our, our mission is to cultivate knowledge and wisdom to transform a generation. And we do that by teaching classic works, but weaving them together with diverse cultures and diverse history. So the lower school, we have a lower and an upper school program. And what I'm going to share with you is kind of what does that look like on the ground? What do we actually do with the kids? So for instance, we had an Odyssey project where the kids were, we read with them a children's version of the Odyssey. And then at the t same time, we introduced them to the Black Odyssey, which is a, a beautiful artistic um, series by Romare Bearden, where he reinterprets the Odyssey through the lenses of um, Africa and the African diaspora. It's a wonderful way to kind of have a dialogue there. Um, they learn Latin. They get some biblical literacy as well. These are pictures from when I ran the program in New Orleans as an after-school program where we would bring the kids out and feed them. I should say that this was a very, very um, under-resourced community. The kids are in public school, um, often a lot of academic struggle, a lot of difficulties in the community. Um, and so consider that context when you consider what they're reading. You know, they're reading this great work, they're looking at wonderful artwork, um, and it was really a wonderful thing to be able to do with kids who are not going to get that in their public school background. So we would also work on basic academic skills, you know, reinforce their, their math facts and their math operations, help them with homework, help them with basic language arts and reading. This is a, a picture from the Black Odyssey. So this is Odysseus going home, right? This is Romare Bearden. So just imagine something like 20 beautiful panels like this. Um, and so as we read the Odyssey, we also studied this art. This is from our Latin class. And the approach to Latin is to help them understand the Latin roots of the English language. So we're not teaching them Latin per se but we're helping them to appreciate the Latin roots of English, and her, perhaps later on they might actually study Latin. This is biblical stories for cultural literacy, so we don't have any more situations where nobody knows who King Solomon and the babies are, no one knows who Noah's Ark is, um, and so just fun, this is like a um, Jeopardy-style biblical literacy game that they're playing here. We also have fun with um, when we were reading Greek mythology, we commissioned artwork to reimagine the Greek gods and goddesses. 
When it comes to historical persons, I'm, I'm much more of a stickler for historical accuracy and what the people look like. But when it comes to the Greek gods and goddesses who often change their own form, I feel that I have more creative license. Um, and so we reimagine the Greek gods and goddesses as black, brown, white, and Asian. And we now have a whole group of these reimagined um, gods and goddesses. I wonder if any of you know who these are. Any guesses? Athena and Zeus is correct. It is Athena and Zeus that you have pictured here. So this is from a gala that we had where the children had put together in the style of Romare Bearden um, different collages, collage art, because Romare Bearden's art is both painting and collage art. And so as they studied this great African-American artist, they then um, emulated him by doing their own collage art based on the different stories we had been reading in the Odyssey. This is one of my favorites. So this is when we were studying the Iliad, shortly before we were shut down by um, COVID. So the, the tallest woman that you see there on the right was one of my college students, because it was college students who did service learning with me who really did all of these activities. People like yourselves, which I'm very grateful for them. Um, so I would come in and say, here's what we're doing today. And my college students would actually kind of do it. So she is a spoken word artist. And so she, um, I asked her, can you write, um, kind of rewrite these stories from the Iliad in rhymed couplets? And it would help the students to kind of have fun with the stories of the Iliad. Um, if this plays, you may actually be able to hear this. Let's see. you a sense of how much fun we had with this, right? And I think this is entirely appropriate, right? Because um, what are the Iliad and the Odyssey? They are epic poems. They were sung, right? You know, it, we often have this very grim approach. We're going to be very serious and study Homer. You know, like it was, it was alive, right? It was a living tradition of, of sung poetry. Um, and so I think reinterpreting it this way is very, very appropriate. And resonated very well with the students. Uh, we also do a lot of picture study, um, introducing them to visual art, which really captures a lot of the students. And here again, we want to introduce them to great works of art, um, and we want to put that in dialogue. And so I'm sure you will recognize the Pieta here, right? Um, and so Kehinda Wiley does a lot that's in dialogue with, um, with great art. And so we put these two together and then have a conversation about them and how they speak to each other. 
We put different readings in dialogue that um, speak to each other, and I've listed some of them here. And then finally, many classic texts. If we were talking about, say, at um, a college level, and you're thinking about what are some of the classic sources on freedom, you know, kind of questions about freedom and political liberty. And so Mortimer Adler's Centopicon, um, which is part of the great books of the Western world, is really filled with those resources. And then there are also similar resources from the black intellectual tradition on the theme of freedom and on many other themes that we might want to discuss. So for all the students here at the University of Richmond who have any interest in this, we are always looking for young people who would be interested in doing a program like this in Richmond. Um, it would fill my heart with joy if we had students here who wanted to do Nyansa Classical Community. Um, my assistant has just established a program in inner city Philadelphia that is using the curriculum and doing really fun things with the students. So I will end with this one learning from the canon. So this is a, a picture that was drawn by a young man who was in one of our programs last year. Uh, it was used by an alternative school in Houston which worked only with foster kids. And as you can imagine, those kids have been through quite a lot um, and dealt with a lot. And they were using our upper school curriculum and this was from a lesson where they were reading um, a section from Frederick Douglass's narrative, the one where he's learning how to read. And we read that together with the allegory of the cave. And so this is the picture that this young man drew to represent the allegory of the cave. And I thank you very much. Thank you so much for your presentation. I actually learned quite a bit. Um, my question is, why do you think we continue to have these, what you call echoes or rhymings, or, or you said rhymings, was that doing? Yes. Yeah. And so why do we continue to have these debates about what's canonical and what's not canonical, or what we should include and what we shouldn't include? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, this, this really goes back um, like even well into the 19th century, before there were any questions about diversity, it was just questions about, do we really need to study Greek and Latin anymore? Like that, that was one of the first ones is, because you couldn't get into university without Greek and Latin. And so it was, can't we shake it up a little bit and you know, open it up to more people? And at that time, there was even a debate on um, authors like Shakespeare like, oh, I don't know, this, this young whippersnapper, um, should we really be reading Shakespeare? <laughs> you know, so even if we take questions of diversity out of it, which is kind of our most recent incarnation, there have been debates about this for hundreds of years, literally, who's in, who's out. Um, and I think whenever you're doing a curriculum where you're saying that there are some great authors that must be read, it's just going to beg the question of, but why these authors and not those authors? You know, whatever the basis of it is. So there were, there's actually quite a big tug of war in the 19th century about including modern languages. You know, should we be reading in modern languages, or should we just keep with the Greek and Latin? Um, and it was Harvard um, 
and President Elliott um, at Harvard who actually put us on the course we're on now of majors um, because we didn't have majors um, before. And once Harvard went in that direction, everyone else followed. Um, and then the, the languages kind of fell by the wayside too, which I think, you know, I, I don't think that was a horrible you know, idea to get rid of Greek and Latin to get into college. Um, so I, I th think we make these changes, um, and it's fine to make changes. I think um, when we got to the 80s with um, Alan Bloom and the closing of the American mind, um, he was just, he was a very polemical writer, but he was also a really engaging writer. And so that go round, um, so that's coming after the, um, the creation of um, ethnic studies, black studies, right, in the 1970s. And so again, that was kind of this, this other epical change. Oh, I don't know, should we go in that direction? You know, um, And so he's kind of responding to that and saying, oh, we're going down the wrong path, right? You know, we shouldn't be doing all of these ethnic studies. We should just kind of stick with the classics. Um, but he's, I mean, he was critical of rock and roll. He, he was critical of a lot of things. He, he's just kind of a, a curmudgeon. Um, so I, I, I think it's because we, we are having these debates of, of who we are, right? But what concerns me now is that we don't even want to have the debate. Like, we, we're not, it, it seems to me, I, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, but it seems to me like it's just a free-for-all. Every, everyone for themselves, and like, if you want to read this and you want to read that and none of us know anything in common, then let's just do that. Um, and I, I think we should stay in the conversation. I think we should stay in the struggle. It's difficult. It's not easy. It will never be easy. But I, I think it's worth having the struggle in the conversation. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I absolutely loved the song that you played. And I was wondering, um, how, what other ways do you see that we can incorporate more joy um, into these curriculums and kind of bring them to life? <laughs> I don't know. We have lots of joy at Nyansa Classical Community. That's, that's, that hasn't been one of our problems. Um, I, I, I think, you know, just more imagination. And the arts are so important. Music, visual arts. Um, so the, I should say that for the first six years of Nyansa, um, there was no written curriculum. I would just show up and say, I think this is what we should do. This semester we should read the Odyssey, and this semester we should read the Iliad, and we should do these arts and crafts. Um, and then when COVID hit, I said, let's revamp. Let's have this all written up so that different people, wherever they are, can do this program and all I have to do is train people. So we've had different programs in, in different US cities. We have some home schools, we have regular schools. Um, one year we had um, a school in Uganda use it as an after school program. And what I would say is that as I was thinking through the curriculum and what we should do, for instance, we would read, you know, in the elementary school, they, they read Greek mythology, they read the Iliad, the Odyssey. And so as I was giving instructions for the curriculum writers, I said, you know, we didn't do this in our program, but I think this would be a fun idea. So after you read the story of um, Athena or Zeus or whatever it might be, have a dress-up box that has items in it that are mentioned in the story so the kids can retell the story by acting it out. 
That is actually from um, a, a pedagogical tool called narration, which is part of Charlotte Mason. Um, Charlotte Mason was um, a, a British educator, and she has a kind of a whole approach of her own. And narration is this process where young children hear a story, and they don't summarize it. They tell it back as if they're the storyteller. So they inhabit the story. And one form of narration is acting it out. Um, so I would say like there are just so many approaches and pedagogies that we use to make it fun, and we kind of had to because it was an after-school program, right? Um, and so they don't have to be there. And I think that's part of it. Um, and we wanted to make it fun, but we wanted them to learn also. But I don't see why you couldn't do that during the school day. You know, and, and we have had some schools use the curriculum during the school day as well. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh, I volunteer with the Youth Life Foundation of Richmond, which is a Christian after-school educational program. And a lot of what you talked about um, seems like it would be you know, great to implement for our kids. I think they would get a lot out of it. But something I've been wondering is about how to, uh, I guess, begin implementing this kind of really from scratch, because a lot of these kids have very little to no knowledge of the classics. You know, do you start chronologically, or how do you integrate new kids into this program, especially if you have someone you know, joining your program that's already been going on for as many years as yours has been? Oh, sure. Yeah, so none of these kids in New Orleans and Philadelphia and Houston had any background whatsoever, none. Um, the curriculum is written in a very user-friendly way. Um, we, it has been tested in, I would say, probably one of the most difficult contexts um, where I lived in New Orleans, where we had kids who were barely reading, um, where we had kids who were coming from homes that were so difficult that um, eventually this child went to live somewhere else because it was, I am absolutely 100% confident that it would be perfectly fine where you're working. It's been used with foster kids, you know, who are, legitimately the state has decided that they can't live at their homes anymore and you know this is you know an example right for the upper school program that this child was part of um, and as well as for the lower school there's a deliberate model that we have of having the instructor read aloud to the children rather than asking the children to read aloud and that is so that rather than stumbling over the words they can hear the beauty of the language now of course we're also going to help them with their reading. We're also going to, you know, help them with practical skills. But um, I think we often don't rank highly enough the importance of reading aloud to children and reading aloud to teenagers. Um, my daughters are in ninth and twelfth grade and I still read aloud to them every day. Every day. Um, before I send them off to school, we read and I read aloud. And I don't think that, um, I don't think we take a, the full measure of that because what happens, especially for kids um, like the ones that you're talking about, the ones that I've worked with, the ones my assistant's working with in Philadelphia, um, you know, it gives them access to literature that is several levels above what they're able to operate in, but they still have the stories, right? It's like if you listen to something on Audible. Okay, maybe you didn't read it yourself with your own eyes, but you still have the story. It's still a part of your cultural store. So we organize things pedagogically so that it works for all children, regardless of what they're coming with. 
Yes, I'm wondering, are you getting any type of resistance uh, to this approach for this, this group or these groups of kids um, using the classics uh, for them as African American kids or anything mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, so I would say most, I'm usually invited to pretty friendly audiences like this one. <laughs> so I haven't had any eggs thrown or fruit or anything like that yet. Hopefully it won't start today. Um, so I'd say when I'm invited to speak, I don't. Um, however, I did have my most contentious talk ever was with um, an audience that was all black, right? And so I was there in person. My co-author was there on the screen on Zoom. And we kind of gave a talk based on our book. And when I tell you they put us through the fire, I mean, it was like knock down, drag out, justify this. You know, what are you doing? Like, where are you coming from? What's really going on here? Um, I mean, I was tired by the time I finished, and I felt like I had been raked over the coals. Um, that is the only audience that was an all-black audience. And <laughs> my co-author has said that she has also gotten the most pushback from black audiences. And I think the reason, I think there's good reason for it. I think the reason is, you know, why do you want us to study these white people, these dead white people? Um, when there has been such a history of racism in our country, when over the last 500 years we've had slavery and colonialism and all manner of horrors. Um, by the time we finished that, however, you know, I, we finished and I thought, oh my gosh, like what, am I gonna get out alive? Um, but then they came up and they said, this was, this was great. Like, we want our kids to have this. And I said, what? I thought you guys were going to, like, you know, kind of ride me out on a rail. Like, I, I had no idea. But they were basically testing us to make sure, are you trying to, like, whitewash our children? Are you bringing some kind of weird kind of assimilationist, Eurocentric curriculum? And so they wanted to just really be sure of who we were and what exactly we were proposing. Um, and my co-author has gotten some similar kinds of pushback. But for the most part, um, once people hear us out, they're usually in favor of what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you.